All right, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. The specific command comes in verse 15. When I got started in ministry, I was in youth ministry, and this became the passage that I would read constantly because the youth group was always fighting. And so I would every now and then stop and just read them this verse. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So this is a command that we not attack one another. And then the warning is that if we do attack one another, is that it actually destroys all of us. So that's the command that comes with that warning, if you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. It comes in this context of a major theme of Galatians, which is that of freedom. And that is that in Christ, we are set free. And specifically, in the context of Galatians, it's we're free from the law. In fact, you see that in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The universal call of every single Christian is that every single Christian is called to this freedom that is given to us in Christ. And it is a freedom specifically from the law. The occasion of the letter to the churches of Galatia. Galatia was a region, so there would have been numerous churches that this would have been read amongst. Uh, the, the issue there that sparked this letter were Judaizers. How many of you are familiar with the Judaizers and what the Judaizers would do? The Judaizers were a group that were spreading a false gospel. Specifically, you come to Christ and you need to uphold the ceremonial law, you need to be circumcised, is what they were saying. And so, if we could translate it this, this was their gospel. You believe in Jesus to be saved, but Jesus is not enough. You've got to add a little bit more to it, which means then that that message doesn't give them freedom, it actually puts them under slavery of the law. And so they were being placed under a yoke of slavery specifically related to you are saved by doing these things. So look what he says. For you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom. You weren't called to be put back under a law. Christ has rescued you from the law. You can think of this freedom manifesting itself in this, is if you were under the law as a means of salvation, if you're, the message to you was, believe in Christ, but do these things and you'll be saved, that puts you under a burden and slavery and yoke to your conscience. Your conscience would never be free, would it? But your conscience always would be testifying to you. Because you could never, ever do enough to justify yourself before God according to the law. And so we see that the law actually fails in this aspect. 
The law is good. The law is holy. The law is given by God, but it fails in saving anyone. No one's saved by it because no one can do it. No one can keep it. And so being right with God is not dependent on what we do or what we try to do. And that was the message of the Judaizers, is that it was a works-based system. Look what Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 10. And by the way, let me just say, it's important to read these verses numerous times to remind yourself of them. Because we naturally put ourselves under a yoke of law. But look what Paul writes. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Specifically, that is the curse of breaking God's law. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, if your scorecard in keeping the law isn't 100%, 100% of the time, from the moment of your birth until the moment of your death, guess what? Scripture says you're cursed. So we're cursed in that. He says now in verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So here's the statement that Paul is making. You are under the law and trying to be justified by the law, and if so, you're under a curse. But he tells us the good news. Christ, who was obedient to the law in all ways, and he was of the seed of the woman, he does not inherit that nature, of sinful nature of Adam, Christ was perfect under the law. Christ on the cross became a curse for us. So here it is. You're in Christ and the curse is removed, or you're not in Christ and the curse remains. And so our justification comes through the blood of Christ, not through works of the law. And so we are set free from these works of the law. Now, as soon as we say that, we're set free from the slavery of the law, automatically we want to say then, well, I can do anything I want. I can just live any way I want then. I'm not, I'm not under the works of the law, so I can just toss the law to the side. But look at how Paul qualifies this. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He immediately qualifies what it means to be free in Christ and to be free from that law. Our freedom, then, in Christ is not a pretext for sin. 
But rather, freedom is that we are no longer enslaved to the desires of the flesh. We can say with David in the Psalms that his word is our greatest desire and that we desire it more than all the riches that we could have, that we love his word and our desire is to do his word. If we have been set free from the law, we are set free to love the law. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, there it is, that, that idea. He says, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, we're set free to actually then become a slave of God. How does Paul so often introduce himself in his letters? Paul, a slave of Christ. And so that is what we are set free from, but we are also set free to. So when he Paul references the flesh in Galatians, that doesn't mean we're free to just indulge in the flesh or an opportunity for the flesh, the flesh here specifically is referring to our old nature, our old self, our self in Adam, that natural self that we have, that place that contains the desires of the old nature that are contrary to the Spirit of God, contrary to the new life that we have in Christ. And so we are not given over to the flesh. We have freedom from the law, but that does not give us a license to just sin any way we want. So that idea, you're set free, but then we also see that we're actually, in some sense, we're not free. But we are. Think of this paradox. I'll give you an illustration of it to kind of give us an idea. In in Exodus, in chapter 4, of Exodus, we read these, this description of God freeing the people from Egypt. In Egypt, they were in bondage, they were in slavery. So in chapter 4, verse 21 of Exodus, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let you go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my first son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may what? He may serve me. When you are set free from the law and put under Christ, you are set free to serve God. Very much like the Egyptians were set free from the bondage and yoke of Egypt. And all of the fleshly aspects of Egypt, they're set free to now go and serve God. You can look at it like that. We are set free to serve the Lord. He goes on to say in verse 14, or excuse me, before he says that, before we conclude from that, he says, but through love serve one another. That idea is that we are actually in servitude 
And some translations say that we would become, through love, a slave to one another. He says in verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so notice that we have a fulfillment of the law. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now if you've studied Galatians, this, Galatians at all, this creates a little bit of a problem because you notice what he says in chapter 5 verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obliged to keep the whole law. So he talks about this idea. If you accept this, then you have to keep the whole law. But then in verse 14, he says the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love the Lord your, or you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's he, what's he telling us to do? He's actually telling us to fulfill the law. So are these two verses at odds with one another? Tom Schreiner, who's a professor of New Testament, says this. He says, verse 3 speaks of doing the law, whereas verse 14 speaks of fulfilling the law. He says, doing the law, quote, doing the law is required for justification. So verse 3 is talking about he is obligated or he is doing the whole law. He says, doing the law is required for justification and is unattainable, while fulfilling the law is the consequence of justification and the results of the Spirit's works. So us doing the law is a consequence and the result of being justified in Christ. So if you're in Christ, you do the law. Why? Because you have been justified and the Spirit resides in you now. And so we do the law, or we fulfill the law, through the Spirit. Also, verse 3, the Galatians were threatened with judgment if they submitted to the Judaizers. Whereas verse 14, fulfilling the law, comes in the context that true freedom shows itself in serving others. Now, if you look at verse 14, everyone just look at it for a second. Do you notice something that's maybe missing there? That you would have maybe heard in someone else's teaching? What's missing there in that verse that, that we want to read into it? Love the Lord your God. And so you look at Matthew for a second. Matthew 22. Jesus tells us the great commandment. He says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So why does Paul state it as only the second table of the law, whereas Jesus says that the whole law is the first and the second table of the law. Why doesn't Paul write that? Well, we would have to reject the idea that Paul didn't think that the first table of the law was necessary. But we have to understand something about God's law. Now, when I say the first table and the second table of the law, does everyone know what I mean? In the Ten Commandments, 
The first table of the laws are duties towards God. The second table of the laws are duties towards neighbor. For instance, we are to not have any other gods. That is our direction towards God. But we are also to uh, not commit murder. Well, that's our direction towards our neighbor. And so the first table has to do with God. The second table has to do with neighbor. And so Paul is missing that first table. But is he really? I don't think so because it's actually an assumed impossibility to fulfill the second table of the law without the first table of the law. Likewise, it's impossible to fulfill the second table of the law without the first table of the law. I think Paul assumes that. And there's another reason why. He's actually quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18. I want you to look at that and the context it comes in. In verse 18, at the end of verse 18, he says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you begin in verse 9, all the way through verse 18, you see an application of that second table of the law. And notice what comes with it, like in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. And so this is a a, a law and what was put in place to leave something behind for those that didn't have that they could glean from it. Okay, so... He says this, notice how it's connected, I am the Lord your God. In other words, this application of God's law in relationship to his neighbor is reinforced by the statement that it comes from God. Look at verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear falsely by my name. Now, notice what do we see here in these commandments? Now, this is not the giving of the Ten Commandments, is it? So what we see here, you shall not steal. You're not to deal falsely. You're not to lie. And you're not to swear by my name. That's taking God's name in vain. Look what it's connected to. If you do these things, you profane profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So notice the connection. If I treat my neighbor poorly, I have actually profaned the name of God. So when I think about how I treat my neighbor, if I think of treating my neighbor poorly as only uh, my neighbor receiving poor treatment, Scripture says, "Uh uh-uh, sorry, you're actually profaning God's name by treating your neighbor this way because the neighbor was created in God's image and is worthy and deserving to be treated with dignity. He goes on in verse 13, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. Notice the connection of how you live is directly connected to your relationship to God. So let me ask you, if you say, yes, I fear God, and I would hope we would all say, yes, I fear God, how does that now manifest itself out? How we treat one another. 
So I can't say, I fear God, but then treat people poorly. I don't fear God. I'm profaning his name at that point. Notice what he goes on to say, you shall not do injustice in court, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. That sounds a lot like James, by the way. You shall not go around as a slanderer. Now, we looked at slander in a couple of weeks ago. Among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Why? I am the Lord. That's the context that we see Paul's quoting of this, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is there's this direct correlation between that second table of the law of loving my neighbor, and it's assumed that that's an impossibility apart from loving God. And so when Paul states this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and that is fulfilled in one word. Yes, we can say that's recognized by how we treat one another, but how we treat one another is a direct correlation to how we view God himself. That's the point. We cannot escape that. So it's a false dichotomy to think I can treat the neighbor poorly and be obedient. So can I be obedient to God while being disobedient to the commands concerning my neighbor? No. Can I be obedient to worship if I'm being disobedient to the commands to love my neighbor? Will my prayer life be hindered if I'm disobedient to the command to love and serve my neighbor? They will be. So it's mutually exclusive to claim devotion to God while not loving and serving my neighbor. My love and devotion to God is expressed in obedience to his word, not just part of his word, his word. That's my love expressed to God as obedience to his word. I'm not justified by it. It cannot justify me. I'm not kept by it, but it is the manifestation of what God has done in my heart. This is why Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, if you love me, that's, that's the conditional statement, then the future Statement is, you will obey my commandments. In other words, this love that we say we have for Christ, if it's a true love for Christ, it will guaranteed, because of the work of the Spirit in us, manifest itself in a, uh, obedience to Christ. It's just a reality of the Christian. We are in, if we are in union with Christ by way of the Spirit, then the righteousness of Christ will pour out of our life because we are in union with Him. Christ kept the whole law on our behalf, and His obedience flows through us. You see Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The vehicle is faith, but it is Christ through the believer. Any of our good deeds, any of our loving of neighbor, we don't pat ourselves on the back to that. We thank Christ for it. For it is Christ who lives in us. Now, how do we destroy that? Well, Paul tells us how we can destroy that. 
He says it in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So how do we destroy this idea of loving neighbor? How do we destroy this idea of serving through love one another? Well, he tells us, if you bite and devour one another. Now, in this context, he's been talking about freedom. Freedom does not mean that we're free to create factions and embrace a divisive environment. He says, but if. Paul had given the command here to exercise true freedom in humble service together, but if the church rejects that, it will do the opposite, which is bite and devour. And what is that language? It's animalistic language. Ferocious animals attacking one another. It's very strong and emphatic language, biting, gripping, and causing extensive damage. Now, Paul's not talking about physical. I've, I've seen numerous church splits and heard of numerous church splits. Rarely do I ever hear, hear of that there's physical violence involved. I'm sure that it happens, but that's rare. And so what he's talking about here is something that's not physical. But he uses the physical description of animals tearing one another apart that they eventually consume. That is that they are destroyed. And this, by the way, comes in the context of an ongoing behavior. It's in the active voice. And so Paul sees this taking place in the churches of Galatia. That this was starting to emerge, or maybe he was fearful that it was emerging, or he was hearing rumors that it was fearful, that there was this possibility of them infighting. And so on this idea of a culture of infighting, he says, watch out. That is, it warns us that if it flares up, what do we need to do? I mean, kill it. Otherwise, it will kill us. We need to see that it is stopped immediately. And so this is treatment of others can actually destroy the unity of the church. Think about it. Treatment of others destroys, can destroy the unity of the church. And this is not speaking about individuals being destroyed, by the way. This is speaking about the destruction of the church. Sometimes people apply this passage where Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and apply that in a local church context as if Christ is guaranteed to preserve Linden First Baptist until he returns. He hasn't. He is guaranteed to preserve his church. But we see churches close all the time. Christ did not fail in his promise. He is preserving the church universal, and he is growing it. What can happen is that a local church can destroy itself. It can become uh, ineffective in a community because of this. Even if a church doesn't destroy itself completely, say if there's still some hangers-ons that, that, that remain, the church has lost its witness because it has been destroyed. 
So here's one thing that we need to take for this. If one person, just say, is targeted, and the biting and the devouring is one person versus a group, and it's we think that one person's destroyed, but actually, what does this text tell us? We're all destroyed. Or if you have two groups that are biting and devouring one another, because we naturally congregate into groups, right? And they are going at it with one another. It's not a situation in which there's a winner that emerges. That's what we have to bear in mind. Paul's talking about complete annihilation. You know, you think about it in the the nuclear arms race that took place during the Cold War. Like, who would have won that one? No one. (laughs) That would have been mutual annihilation of the whole earth if we would have just started dropping nuclear weapons. No one wins. That's the point that Paul's making is that if we bite and devour one another, it's mutual destruction that takes place. There's no so-called winners. And I think this context here, and most commentators make note of this, this context indicates that the Judaizers, those rascals, are the cause of this. And they had been making inroads into the church to the point that the church began to divide by those that might have been compromising the gospel. You notice how Paul talks about this. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, O you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So you have this outside group that makes their way in. They're not inside the, in, in the church. They're making their inroads in the church. And inside the church, you have now a division because of what this outside group has done over doctrinal issues. And it has to, we have to see the churches of Galatia. They were believers. They were united in Christ because Paul, throughout this whole letter, after he, he goes after them, he calls them brothers. And he talks about the realities that they have in Christ. But the Judaizers had a false gospel. And they had infiltrated the church and created divisions in the church. So their lines were clear. Now, what should have happened in the churches of Galatia? the Judaizers should have been kicked to the curb. And this church should have united around the gospel of Christ. But rather, some in the churches were embracing a false gospel and it began to create problems. teaches us something about the church. Theological differences can cause factions. And then those factions... They can start off very innocently, but what can happen in time? They become divisive. And then you have over here this group. And then you have this group here. They're no longer united around the gospel of Christ, but they're divided by a theological nuance. 
the cruelest debates that I have been seeing in the church are existing right now. Do you know what they're about? The biggest debate that I've been watching, it's, it hasn't been over, over critical race theory and things like that. It's actually how we understand God's attributes ad intra and how they manifest themselves ad extra. And none of you know what I'm talking about. That's a really fine, nuanced theological point that it's important, but none of us really care about. But yet, the reason I bring that up is to say that I have seen outright meanness between Christian groups that just a year ago were doing conferences together over a very difficult and complex and nuanced point of theology. And they're fighting over it to the point that it, it, it's, there's mocking and there's all sorts of books being written and about one another. We don't divide over those type of things. I think Paul would, would first of all, correct our theology and tell us the right view, but then he would, he would say, well, you guys knock it off. Unite around Christ. Don't divide over these things that it takes Augustine and Thomas Aquinas to understand. But you guys are to be united. So we can see how a theological issue that should not rise to the level of first importance can divide us. So we need to recognize what issues separate us in terms of covenant community and what separates us in terms of being a Christian and just what separates us in debatable issues. We need to recognize those different things. Now, as we look at this idea of biting, devouring one another, this specifically comes into the context of the church. But let me say that as a Christian, it must spill into all areas of the Christian life, whether it's work, whether it's home, school, wherever it is in our neighborhood. This must spill out into our lives, this principle of not biting and devouring. And we have to be above this because in Christ We have been given freedom, and Christ has made us above these things. Now, something interesting, I want to put this in another perspective, just so we see the seriousness of biting and devouring and this annihilation that takes place because of it. To quote Tom Schreiner again, he makes this connection that the biting is something that would have been have this this phrase of biting and devouring would have been something used in the Old Testament of serpents. And he draws this connection, which in the Old Testament it always refers to demonic activity. So it means that it's a completely uh, antithetical to the work of the Spirit in our life. And so you can have either Demonic activity or life in the Spirit? When you think of it like that, it's like when we go back last week, we looked at lying. When we lie, we're actually imitating who? Satan. And so we see this idea that when we put it in this context, it puts the weight and seriousness of this command that we are not to bite and to devour one another. 
So, our freedom that we're given in Christ cannot lead us to an antinomianism, that is an anti-law, but rather our freedom frees us to love, to desire, and to keep the law. Our freedom removes the burden of the law and rather turns it into a a delight to us. And our freedom allows us to, in love, serve one another and fulfill the whole law. That is our command. We see how we can destroy that. We can destroy that through factions and through the, the commitment to mutually annihilating one another through biting and devouring. If we see it, we must kill it. We can't allow it to be here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your perfect, inerrant word that you have given us to guide us and direct us. We praise you that in Christ we're set free from the burdens of the law, and we're set free from the law and enabled to love your law. Father, we pray for your grace and your help that we be obedient to your word, and we would desire to always preserve the unity that Christ has given us. We pray that as we depart from here, that our hearts will be prepared to gather and worship on Sunday. And so we pray that we would continue to reflect on these things the remainder of our week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.